This is an ABC podcast. It's been a while since artificial intelligence systems were the exclusive preserve of science fiction. AI is with us, and it's going to be with us more and more as time goes on. But the whole business of teaching machines to interact with humans can lead us into difficult ethical territory, which has partly to do with the nature of machines, but partly also with the nature of ethics. And that's what we're talking about this week in The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to the program. Today's guest is a philosopher who's spent a lot of time and done a lot of work in the space where artificial intelligence and ethics meet. But being a philosopher in the world of AI can be a lonely business, and he's found himself on many occasions participating in panel discussions on AI and ethics, where he is the only person present who has undertaken the formal study of ethics. So what does that tell us about the tech side of the business? If one is being charitable, what it tells us is that people in the engineering profession, in computer science, in artificial intelligence, understand that ethics is important, that this is a conversation that we need to be having, and it's something that they want to be involved in. However, it's also hard not to uh, be struck by the fact that if I started telling them about how to you know, design a neural net or how to build a better um, knee joint for a robot, uh, they wouldn't listen to me for a moment. And so it is hard not to think that there's a certain either arrogance here where people think, well, I'm clever, you know, I'm good at engineering, and how hard can this philosophy uh, be? Or that they don't understand the nature of the ethical one. Ultimately, it's the second that worries me more. That's Robert Sparrow. He's Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne and the author of a recent paper published in the journal AI and Society titled Why Machines Cannot Be Moral. Anytime an AI's decision affects anyone, there'll be an ethical component to it because what happens to people matters ethically. So, for instance, if a bank is using an AI to decide whether or not you get your housing loan, uh, that may matter greatly to you. And if that AI systematically discriminates against people who have searched particular things on the internet or who live in a particular postcode, uh, that is going to be ethically important. When we start using AI in medicine, people will need to be thinking about how to balance the dangers of false positives and false negatives. And that's uh, at one level, that's an ethical uh, calculus. So wherever we're using AI, we need to be thinking about ethics. So, well, before we get to a discussion about whether or not it's possible to create moral machines, as, as we call them, there are other ways in which researchers and regulators propose meeting the ethical challenges of AI, and they include things like specifying rules to determine correct decisions taken by AI systems in, in their various circumstances, or, or maintaining a degree of human input, which would which would kick in whenever an ethically charged situation cropped up. Can we talk about these proposals first, and, and what, in your view, is is wrong with them, where they come up short? The problem with trying to specify ahead what a machine should do is just that when you start using AI in the real world, uh, these systems encounter a whole series of unexpected uh, circumstances. And it's simply very hard for human beings uh, 
uh, to know what they need to know about the dilemma that the AI is involved in, in order to tell it what to do. So pre-programming is a non-starter in a whole range of areas. The other problem with telling a machine to call home, and this was a popular idea in the literature on autonomous weapon systems for a while, is that when one of these machines encounters an ethical dilemma, or maybe when it encounters an ethical dilemma uh, that it recognises exceeds that which it has supposedly been programmed to resolve, uh, it will phone home to base and accept instructions from a human being. Uh, the problem with that is that some of these decisions need to be made in a split second, and there are some circumstances in which it simply won't be possible to get human input in time. Uh, so the nature of the context in which people are using AI uh, makes it very hard to either sort out all the problems beforehand or default to human supervision. So those are the two approaches that people are imagining. I don't think either of them are fully sensitive to um, the nature of the ethical. Right. Well, let's talk about the nature of the ethical because there are there are certain features of the ethical that you believe make the whole notion of building a moral machine problematic. And you've come up with a really interesting thought experiment that highlights these features. Can you run us through that? So in order to think about whether machines can do ethics, it's useful first to think about whether we could hand over responsibility for our ethical decisions to a machine or indeed to a human expert. So in the paper, I imagine uh, someone facing an ethical dilemma about whether or not to take his father off life support and then hearing that some big AI corporation has created a moral advisor uh, that he can access on his phone. And so he thinks, great, type in all these details, my phone spits out an answer, right, I should do that. Uh, and in my mind, that's a caricature of moral reasoning. This is not an example of someone making an ethical decision or taking the dilemma seriously. This is an example of someone precisely failing to do that. And, and so the idea that we could build moral machines presupposes that the nature of the ethical is such that we could outsource our decisions to machines or to other people. Uh, but there's something about the ethical that means that when we confront decisions, they're our decisions, they're decisions for us in a very deep sense. And so when people start to talk in ways that suggest that we can hand these over to other people, they're missing what I, I believe to be a, a deep truth about the ethical. So is this what you mean when you say that ethical dilemmas attach to agents in such a way that they're essentially dilemmas for, for particular people, as opposed to say, well, the other example you give is a, um, uh, you know, consulting an app to figure out how to structure a housing loan. You know, that's something that requires a general solution. But the dilemma of whether or not you should terminate your father's life support needs to be addressed in a a particular and highly personal way. Is that what you're saying is, is sort of central to the, the nature of an ethical dilemma? Yes, it's one of the distinctive features of the ethical is that dilemmas present themselves as dilemmas for us. Uh, they're personal uh, in this very uh, deep sense. And that means both that 
other people will take what we do to reveal something important about us. Uh, we are who we are in part by virtue of our history of the ethical decisions that we've made. But it also means that we can't escape our responsibility for our decisions by employing an expert. You know, someone can't ring me up and say, uh, Rob, you're a philosopher who writes about ethics. I've got this problem. Can you deal with it for me? Uh, there are circumstances where we can properly seek ethical advice. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have to make the decision and we have to live with whatever remorse or regret uh, might follow from it. So, yes, unlike a decision about mathematics or engineering where you could well uh, recognise the limits of your own knowledge and say, look, time to get an expert in and make the choice to do whatever that person says. And if you do that, you're reasoning well. You go to the expert, they do it better than you, and that's totally fine. But with the ethical, we simply can't do that. But you mentioned before that consulting an app to determine whether or not to switch off a loved one's life support, that this this evinces a failure to take the decision seriously in a way that isn't true of the decision to consult an app about structuring a home loan. But what do you mean exactly by taking it seriously? Because you could say that going to a third party for advice on an ethical dilemma is uh, very much a sign that you're taking it seriously, even if that third party is, is an app or some other kind of AI. What it is to take a decision seriously will differ depending on the nature of the decision. And in some circumstances, I think some, you might judge that someone else is taking something seriously precisely because they say, look, I have to make this decision. This decision is mine in this deep way. And if I start asking around trying to get advice on it, um, that is... Um, trying to escape my responsibility or uh, <laughs> uh, dithering and it's not taking it seriously. But in other circumstances, I think we, we would accept that because this is a very important decision, taking it seriously requires uh, seeking advice. Uh, what that advice looks like and the, what role it plays uh, is itself something that we need to look at closely. Uh, because often when people look for advice on ethical matters, what they really want is, um, is more empirical uh, information. They want to know what will happen if they do uh, certain things. Sometimes they might want to know a little bit of ethical theory of the sort that we uh, teach in the classroom. And sometimes what they're looking for is actually wisdom. They're looking for someone who knows what they're uh, going through, perhaps who has faced this decision in the past, and they're looking to have their situation illuminated in the way that talking with someone uh, who is has a sort of gravitas or a certain uh, moral seriousness that we respect, uh, sometimes they will enable us to see meanings in a decision that we weren't aware of uh, before. But no matter how much advice one seeks, Ultimately, one still has to make the decision uh, oneself. And the thought that because you've sought advice now that you're somehow off the hook uh, itself is evidence that someone hasn't understood the nature of the decision that they're making. Let's look at it in, in terms of objectivity and subjectivity in ethical choices. Because you, you write that there is a kind of objectivity in ethics, but 
that the uh, the sense in which ethical questions are objective is different to the sense in which scientific questions are objective. What are you getting at there? This stuff is very difficult because philosophers writing about ethics uh, have often wanted to insist that there is indeed some subject matter here that you can be right or wrong about ethics, that this isn't just all um, hot air, as some ethical relativists or ethical subjectivists have insisted. So we want to say, look, this stuff matters because you can get it wrong. People have been wrong about slavery in the past, or they've been wrong about the ethics of homosexual sex acts or, or whatever it is. These are things that we can get right or wrong. But if our model of truth is scientific or mathematical, then it's very hard to see how the person can be involved in the ethical uh, decision. There's a sense in which scientific knowledge, uh, people can be better or worse scientists, but the test of their being better or worse is a set of standards that are independent of any human being. They are judged by a standard external to any person. And that simply doesn't seem to be the case uh, with the ethical, uh, because it can't explain this sense in which ethical decisions are, in fact, always decisions for particular people. This is The Philosopher's Zone on RN with me, David Rutledge, and this week we're talking about ethics and artificial intelligence and whether or not it's possible to put them together in such a way as to create moral machines. My guest is Robert Sparrow, Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. So if I go and seek advice on a moral question or an ethical dilemma, then hopefully the person I'm consulting has some sort of moral authority. Can we talk a bit about that? What is moral authority to you? Where does it come from? We often see slogans on uh, T-shirts or, or tea towels. Why don't they play a real role in our ethical decision-making. I mean, you know, someone's facing an ethical dilemma and I say, here, here's a tea towel. It's got some relevant moral claim on it. The nature of ethics is that because ethics is personal, what we bring to these ethical decisions also means that our advice is uh, personal in a way. And so you can, for instance, be having the same conversation with two different people and one of them just comes across as, you know, glib and foolish and partially because you see what they've done with their life or you um, hear the tone of their voice or you see the manner in which they're rolling their eyes as they give uh, this advice. And someone else is taking it seriously and considering the matter and offering advice that is useful uh, because of their own wisdom that they have accumulated through their past history and through their own uh, ethical life. That person has moral authority and that's the person that you should listen to. 
Um, this is quite difficult, I think, for philosophers, particularly those involved in teaching ethics, to admit uh, because we would like to pretend that we can teach people how to be ethical. You know, turn up to my classroom, I'll give you a uh, two-hour seminar on three moral theories, and after that you'll be well prepared to lead an ethical life. It simply doesn't work like that. Uh, to become ethical, to become wise, requires a journey and a process, and part of that is to be amongst people who take the ethical seriously. And taking it seriously is not a matter of just giving someone an A4 sheet and say, here, this is what you should do. So moral authority doesn't come from knowing a lot about ethics in some academic sense. And, and you say in the paper, you say that there's no such thing as ethical expertise, which I think is something that um, uh, a lot of uh, philosophers, <laughs> academic philosophers might bridle at. I have often wanted to, um, you know, do a study where you have a look at what's the impact of having a PhD in ethics on rates of, um, you know, adultery or tax evasion <laughs> yeah. or whatever it is that we think is obviously unethical. Or behaviour on social media. Yeah, any, any number of tests. My suspicion is that those things would be very poorly, uh, very poorly correlated. And, and people do have a sense of that. They have a sense that uh, it's possible to have book knowledge. It's possible to be a smart aleck and to be clever and facile. And it's also possible to be someone who is genuinely wise and worth talking to without necessarily being able to read philosophy journals. Uh, so I do think philosophy has something to contribute here. But what it can't do is simply solve these questions for you. It simply can't say, look, read this short book. Here's all you need to know to be a good person. Uh, the nature of the ethical is that you need to uh, become ethical yourself. Can we talk about the role that physicality, you know, that faces and bodies and expressive capability play in this? Because this is something that you say is, um, is is key to, or certainly part of the ethical encounter, and it has something to do with, with moral authority and the way that it's transmitted. How do you see that working? The relationship between bodies and minds and between bodies and truths is a um, you know, deep and old uh, philosophical question. And in some ways, this is why I first started thinking about AI. Uh, one of the first papers I wrote on AI was a paper called The Turing Triage Test, where I tried to imagine a circumstance when I would might feel as though I had murdered a machine, uh, that in switching off an AI, I felt the same way that I might feel if I switched off the life support for a human being. And what that thought experiment reveals, I think, is that part of what it is to be ethically precious to be an individual uh, is to have a face and a body in which the individuality is inscribed and that entities that in some sense were only contingently embodied where you could copy their minds around from uh, machine to machine, uh, for instance, as some people imagine doing uh, with AI, would be radically different entities. So, yes, I think that who we are 
is um, body as well as mind. And so our moral personality uh, through which our ethical knowledge and wisdom is expressed is an embodied personality. And we see this when we think about how you distinguish between uh, people who are serious and people who are glib, and it's in their mannerism and their tone of voice. You know, you need to have a conversation with them and ask them, you know, are you serious? And their tone and their manner and their affect and their mannerisms uh, all properly play a role uh, in making that assessment. And so with all this in mind, this is where we come to your contention that machines can never have moral character or moral authority because because they lack they don't have faces i mean they have interfaces but they don't have the kind of expressive capacity and they don't have the kinds of lives if you like that enable them to attain wisdom there are at least two reasons why i don't think that machines will be capable of uh, being ethical uh, one is, as you've remarked, that without bodies and without life histories, they simply won't be able to establish that they possess wisdom or that they are compassionate or that they understand ethical dilemmas because those concepts all require for their application these human interactions that we have with each other where tone of voice and expression uh, and bodily history uh, play a central role. Uh, so they lack the right kind of bodies. They're not essentially embodied at all, it seems to me, uh, machines, as most people are thinking of them. And they lack the life histories to establish this personal connection uh, to ethics that shows that you understand ethics. Uh, but it's also the case that understanding uh, the personal and ethics, and I should say that this is a, a concept that I have learned about through reading the work of the Australian philosopher Raymond Gaeta, who's been a, a strong influence here. But uh, the role of the personal and ethics means that that project of setting a machine loose on a big data set of ethical decisions uh, is doomed because precisely what you would want the machine to be learning from, uh, which is the situated moral authority of individual speakers, isn't present in that data set. That book learning, <laughs> the sort of material that you can represent on the page, uh, isn't going to be able to teach a machine to be ethical at all. So there are both those problems, understanding how ethics is personal and understanding the role played by moral authority uh, suggests that there are these two large problems with this project of trying to build moral machines. Your argument, though, seems to be based on a model of ethical AI that relies on something, you know, something analogous to a programmer just punching a set of ethical instructions or principles into a machine. But can't we imagine, though, as the writers of science fiction have so often imagined, that it could be possible to create a machine that, that grows in understanding and learns and over time comes to possess moral character 
and moral authority on the strength of what you might call life experience. It's, I mean, it's it's the you know the replicants in Blade Runner. It's it's speculative stuff. But is, is there something intrinsic to AI that says that it just could never be developed in this way? When people push me on this, I think part of what's going on here is that people want to um, present me with the example of a machine that is really a human being. Sometimes they'll explicitly say, you know, these machines are so like us that you can't tell that they're not human, you know, which is what the Blade Runner example uh, is supposed to do. Uh, Now, at this stage, I wonder if we're not, you know, in the realm of the problem of other minds and we're dealing with scepticism more generally. Uh, you know, what, what if those things that we think are real aren't, as it were? And, and I think philosophical argument often goes wrong here. I also think that once you start running this line of argument, we lose contact with the idea that these things are machines. What is it for something to be a machine? You know, if this is a machine that has grown, has had a childhood, a life history and is mortal, I begin to wonder whether these things are machines. Uh, So what I want to insist is that in order for something that you call a machine to be capable of doing ethics, so many of our human concepts and our interpersonal relations must apply to it that I start to wonder whether it's really a machine at all. Well, meanwhile, the development of AI proceeds, and as we've talked about it, it often proceeds without philosophers or or ethicists in the room. How concerned are you that, in spite of everything that we've just been talking about, that we are going to see AI systems developed with ethical capability, quote-unquote, that is based on a poor understanding of ethics? Are we already seeing it? We'll certainly see AI deployed. We've already seen AI deployed uh, in circumstances where it's appropriate to ethically evaluate both the outcome uh, of that decision and indeed the decision to use AI uh, in that role. But what I would want to insist is that the appropriate object of evaluation is always the human beings, always the human uh, decisions. Uh, There is a sense in which we can talk about machines being better or worse Uh, You could look at two different autonomous weapon systems and say this one kills more more civilians than that one, and so uh, it's a a worse machine. Uh, But to say that these machines are doing ethics, to say that they understand ethics or they've programmed to be ethical is to misunderstand the nature of the ethics. The ethics is all in the human beings. Uh, We can evaluate Uh, the machines, but ultimately what we need to be doing is having a conversation with each other, not pretending uh, that the machines are a part of that conversation themselves. Robert Sparrow, Professor of Philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne and the author of Why Machines Cannot Be Moral. That was published in the journal AI and Society in January this year, and we'll put details on the Philosopher's Zone website. I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter where I'm very happy to take requests. If you want to give me a shout and suggest people or topics that you'd like to hear on the program, then go right ahead at David P Zone. Thanks for joining me. See you next time.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.